0: The Hebrew scriptures are filled with over 456 verses containing prophecies of the Messiah. As Jesus told the apostles following his resurrection in Luke 24 46, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, or otherwise known as the writings, Refer to that threefold division of the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. And indeed, the law, the prophets, and the writings foretell Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and future reign. Annually, we celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th. Probably not the actual day of his birth. The actual day of his birth would be sometime in the fall. But nonetheless, we recognized in A.D. 336, the 25th of December, as a day to celebrate the birth of Christ. Interestingly, while for the first 300 years, the church did not have a day to celebrate Christ's birth, the New Covenant writings, or the New Testament, begins with what? The birth of Christ. But Matthew's and Luke's narratives are not the first mention of Christ's birth. Indeed, Christmas is foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures. Christmas in the law focuses on four prophecies. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the scepter of Judah, and the star of Jacob. As we consider the seed of the woman we see a prophecy that foretells right in the very beginning, right in Genesis 3.15, that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. The seed of Abraham, again in Genesis, tells us that Jesus would be born as the promised son who would come to redeem all humanity. We move a little further in the Genesis chapter 49 and we see the scepter of Judah. The scepter of Judah foretells that Jesus would be born as both king and lawgiver. And then in Numbers we see the star of Jacob. That foretells that Jesus would be born as king and is the embodiment of the Shekinah in human flesh. Indeed, as we think of that song, The First Noel, or We Three Kings, we sing of that star. And here, in the law, the star was prophesied. The star that would appear when Christ was born. Christmas in the writings focuses on two prophecies. The Son of God and the 70 weeks. The Son of God in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 foretells that the Messiah will be born but the Messiah born is the Son of God. He is not God's Son genealogically. No, in the sense of being the Son of God, it means that Jesus is the same as God. In other words, the title Son of God denotes that the second person of the Godhead for all eternity shares the same essence, same character, same attributes as the first person of the Godhead who is called the Father. The Holy Spirit moved upon Mary's womb creating a human fetus and infusing it with the eternal Son of God. And then we come to Daniel 9. The 70 weeks foretells God's 490 year plan for Israel. And pinpoints the birth of the Messiah. That 490 years began in 457 BC. With the Artaxerxes decree to return and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And Daniel tells us that after 483 years, the Messiah would be revealed and begin His ministry. And that revealing occurred 483 years after 457 B.C. So they knew A.D. 26 would be the time when the Messiah would be revealed and begin His ministry. Men and women like Simeon, who studied and believed the Hebrew Scriptures, knew based on Psalm 110 that the Messiah would be a priest. And knowing that he would be a priest, they knew his ministry couldn't begin until age 30. Now they knew he was coming in A.D. 26. All they had to do was back up 30 years, which would bring us to 5 B.C. for the birth of the Messiah. That's why Simeon was looking. That's why Anna was looking. That's why others were looking, because they knew The fullness of time was at hand. And that's exactly what occurred in in the fall of 5 B.C. Jesus the Messiah was born. But what about the prophets? We've seen the law. We've seen Christmas in the law. We've seen Christmas in the writings. But what about Christmas in the prophets? In Luke chapter 1. We can turn over there for a moment. Luke chapter 1 verses 68 to 70 will set the stage for Christmas in the prophets. Now in Luke chapter 1, we do not begin with Jesus. We begin with the birth of John the Baptist. We begin with a priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And they're barren. They don't have any children. She's unable to conceive. And God miraculously moves upon her womb so that her and Zacharias are able to conceive. And she gives birth to a son named John. You'll recall that Zacharias didn't believe the angel. He doubted. And because he doubted, God struck him and made him mute. He was unable to speak. Until the birth of his son. Luke chapter 1 verse 68 says, Zacharias was then... Filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets of old. Again here's Zechariah the priest. His son has been born he's named him John. And all of a sudden God opens his mouth, and he is possessed by the Holy Spirit, and begins prophesying of the Messiah. And he declares that the Messiah will be the horn of salvation. Now a horn, an animal horn, was a symbol of power. And so he prophesies that the Messiah will have the power of salvation. He will have the power to redeem. And this redemption is not only from Israel's oppression, from Israel's enemies, but also redemption from sin. Zechariah also declares that the Messiah would come from the house of David. The horn of the animal, not only is a symbol of power, but the horn of the animal was used to anoint Davidic kings. And so the Messiah is prophesied here to be the anointed king. Zechariah also declared that the Messiah's birth was predicted by the holy prophets from of old. And indeed, Christmas in the Hebrew Scriptures concludes with the prophets. Notably, the prophets focus on four prophecies. The seed of David, the sign of the virgin, the stem of Jesse, and the small town. So we're going to begin Christmas in the prophets. We're going to begin in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verses 12 to 13 and 16. Let's turn over to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13 and 16. Now remember that threefold division. The prophets okay, begin with Joshua and Judges. That's one scroll. And then Samuel and Kings is another scroll. uh, And then we move down into Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. And and end with the uh, final scroll of the 12 minor prophets. But the book of Samuel is considered one of the prophets. Why? Well, Samuel's the, basically a prophet. Okay, He's not a, really a priest. He's definitely not a king. He's a judge, but he's a prophet. And so we're going to begin here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. And this isn't the prophet Samuel now speaking, but another prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan says to David, When your days are complete and you lie down from your fathers, I will raise up your descendant." After you, who will come forth from you, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now let's set the context here of Second Samuel seven. David wants to build a temple, a temple for God. And so in verses 1 through 5, David goes to Nathan the prophet and says, I'm going to build a temple for God. However, Yahweh speaks to the prophet Nathan in verse 6 and 7, saying this, I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes which I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, though David wanted to build a temple, God never, ever commanded a temple to be built. The only thing God commanded them to build was what? A tabernacle. A movable device that could be set up and taken down. Now that tabernacle was certainly patterned after the temple in heaven. But God's intention was never to have a temple built by man on earth. Now David, a little bit of self-fulfillment, sees Solomon as the one who, as the descendant, who is the Messiah, who's going to build the temple. And when when you develop a Messiah complex, you begin to understand how Solomon fell. It was never God's intention for Solomon to build the temple. God never commanded David to build it. He never commanded Solomon to build it. He never commanded the exiles to rebuild the temple. And he certainly didn't command Herod to build the temple. Did God intend a temple to be built? Yes. By a descendant of David? Yes. But not the one they were thinking. Nonetheless, God makes a covenant with David. And in this covenant, Yahweh promises that his descendant would reign on the throne over his people forever. I will raise up your descendant after you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, focus on that word, descendant. Now, when we go back to Genesis 3.15, we were introduced to the seed of the woman. And in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, we were introduced to the word descendant. Both rendering the same Hebrew term, zirah. Here in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 the descendant also renders the same term Zerah. In all three uses it's a singular masculine noun. Strong's tells us that the term Zerah can designate a whole line of descendants as a unit or it's also flexible enough to denote one person i.e. the man of promise and ultimately Christ. And what do we have here in this Davidic covenant? We have the seed or the descendant promised to the woman in Genesis 3.15, promised to Abraham in Genesis 17, and now promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. In all three of those prophecies, it is not a promise of many descendants, but a promise of one descendant, one seed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew identifies the seed. He identifies the descendant. He identifies him as Jesus the Messiah, the son of, the descendant of David. There in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, you see the word son, Quias refers to a male offspring. That, that word can refer to a biological descendant or an adopted descendant. So even if the son is not a biological descendant, as long as they've been adopted as a son, they have the same legal claim to David's throne. Now Matthew follows all the way down until we come to Joseph. And we know that Jesus was not Joseph's biological son. But he was his adoptive son. And as the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus has the legal right to be David's heir and to sit on the throne of of David as king. Just as promised in the Davidic covenant. Continuing in Matthew chapter 1 for a moment, David is mentioned by name five times in 17 verses. In the first 17 verses of Matthew's chronicle, Matthew's genealogy, David's mentioned five times. To further drive home the Messiah's relationship with David, Matthew divides his chronology into three sections of 14 generations each. So we have Abraham to David, David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah. And all three of those divisions all focus around the Davidic monarchy. The first 14 generations are pre monarchy The second 14 generations are monarchy, and the last 14 uh, generations are the post-monarchy. And by ordering this chronology into three groups of 14, Matthew presents uh, something systematically and memorably. But there's more to this organization than being systematic and memorable. In the Hebrew language, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet... Has a numeric value. Now the number 14 in Hebrew is conveyed by three Hebrew letters. Dalat, or D, what we would say is D, the Wa, or the Vav, depending on how you pronounce it. And the Dalat, and another Dalat. Okay, so we have Dalat, Vav, Dalat. Now Dalat is the equivalent of the number 4. The Vav is the equivalent of 6. Numerically, if I write out Dalit Vav Dalit, I have the equivalent of 4 plus 6 plus 4, which would be what? 14. Now, when I write out Dalit Vav Dalit, it also spells out a name. Whose name? Dawid, or David David. David's name is all over this. Why? To show that Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of the prophet's uh, statement about the seed of David. By presenting Christ's genealogy in groups of 14, Matthew further underscores that connection. He leaves no doubts that Jesus was the divinely promised seed of the woman, the divinely promised seed of Abraham, and the divinely promised seed of David, who would reign forever upon the throne. And that is the one who will build the temple. As the promised seed, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, sent to redeem humanity. Christmas and the Prophets continues in Isaiah 7.14. Let's turn over to Isaiah 7.14. In Isaiah 7.14 we have the prophecy of the sign of the virgin. The prophecy of the sign of the virgin. Verse 14 says, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now contextually Isaiah 7 occurs during the reign of King Ahaz of Judah. Now the King Ahaz learns of a alliance between King Pekah of Ephraim, otherwise known as Israel, and King Rezin of Aram to destroy Judah. Yahweh directs Isaiah, go and tell Ahaz to not fear the alliance between Ephraim, or Israel, and Adam. So according to a Yahweh in Isaiah 7, 8, listen, look at what he says. Go back to verse 8. Yahweh says to Isaiah, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. So that it will no longer be a people. Now you've got to watch with prophecy folks. This prophecy was given in 734 BC. 734 BC. In 722 BC. Assyria conquered Ephraim. And began deporting Israelites. In 699 BC. Which guess what? is exactly 65 years after Isaiah's prophecy, Assyria had deported all the Israelites and now began to import foreigners into Samaria and the land formerly known as Ephraim or Israel. You don't have a reason to fear because in 65 years there will be no more kingdom of Israel. And 65 years to the day it happened. Isaiah then told Ahaz, listen, request a sign from Yahweh as a token confirming his word. Ahaz refuses them. And he recites Deuteronomy 6.16, Oh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Unfortunately for King Ahaz, he took the scripture out of context. A problem many believers have today. They love to lift scriptures up out of their context. You see, the reason he misquoted that scripture was because he wasn't pious. No. It was because he really didn't believe what God had said through his messenger Isaiah. Listen, if the prophet of God tells you to request a sign, then friends, it is not going against what God said in other scripture. Him asking for a sign is obedience to what God said for him to do. He wasn't testing God. But he wanted to sound pious, when he really wasn't. He simply was covering up the fact that he didn't believe what God said. Nonetheless, Isaiah says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you won't ask for a sign, God's going to give you one anyway. And notice that word sign, ult. It denotes a miraculous event performed by a divine being. A miraculous event performed by a divine being. Specifically, what is the sign? The sign is that a virgin will be with child and bear a son. Isaiah is clear that Jesus' conception via a virgin was a divinely designed, extraordinary event confirming that he was the Messiah. And despite skeptics who claim that Isaiah 7.14 should be rendered as a young woman with child, the text has historically been translated as a virgin will be with child. The term rendered as virgin here is the verb alma, or the term alma, which is a marriageable girl or young woman until the birth of her first child. Now seven times the Hebrew term alma is used in the scriptures. And all seven times, it describes a young virgin woman. When the translators came along and created the Septuagint, they understood the meaning of Alma, and so they consistently rendered the Hebrew term with the Greek term Parthenos. Parthenos refers strictly to a woman who has had no sexual relations with a man. We call that what? A virgin. So the translators of the Septuagint, 250 B.C., understood the word Alma to mean virgin. Mary's virginity is further brought forward in Matthew one twenty three, when Matthew quotes the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy. How does he translate it? He translates the term Alma with Parthenos. We look at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Both in Matthew and Luke's genealogies, we have a confirmation that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and remained a virgin until after she birthed Jesus. Now yes, she did go on and have other children with Joseph. But she had no relations with a man before Jesus' birth and she didn't have relations with a man until after he was born. Throughout Matthew's record, Matthew 1, to 2-16, we see the phrase, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. That phrase, was the father of, renders the Greek term ganao, ganao. Now the active voice of ganao refers to the male agent responsible for the conception of a child. So hence, Abraham what? Fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, so on and so forth. But in verse 16, we have something different. Matthew changes from the active to the passive voice of Ganao. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Now that passive voice tells us something. It tells us that Joseph was not the father. He did not sire Jesus. Also, notice again there in Matthew 1.16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom? That prepositional phrase, by whom, is important because it's a feminine pronoun there, pointing back to who? Not Joseph, but to Mary. In other words, Joseph was the husband of Mary, but it was solely Mary who was involved in Jesus' birth. If we go over to Luke 3 verses 23 to 31, Luke's genealogy, we see a very similar occurrence. Here we have the use of the phrase son of. So from verse 23 to verse 31, so and so was the son of so and so, the son of so and so, the son of so and so. In other words, person A birth person B. Person B birth person C. Now again, looking at it in the Greek, every usage of that phrase son of is preceded by an article, the. The son of, the son of, the son of. Except, in verse 23. Jesus was supposed the son of Joseph. Now yes, there's a the there in the English for readability. But in the Greek text, there is no definite article there before the son of Joseph. That's why the translators render it as supposed thought to be, considered to be. But the lack of the definite oracle tells us there's something unusual about this birth. All the other births follow the normal pattern. This one doesn't. It underscores that while Joseph was accepted by the people as his father, he was not the actual physical father. Again, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Matthew one eighteen reveals when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child. Came together. Sunakomai means to engage in sexual intimacy. Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant however I can't be the father he says. Why? Because we have not engaged in sexual intimacy. So Mary must have committed adultery. And Joseph's reaction is I, I care for her But I have to divorce her. But I'm going to do it privately because I do care for her. Now in Matthew 1.20 while Joseph is considering all of this behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Notice the angel reminds Joseph of his messianic lineage. Now, up to this point, son of David has been applied consistently to Jesus. But now, Joseph, you're also of the you're also a son of David. And, J, and he's implying, Joseph, you're going to take Mary as your wife. You're going to legally adopt her child as yours, meaning that this child would also legally be the son of David. Joseph, you're going to take Mary as your wife. And contrary to opinion, the angel tells him the child is not the result of an affair, but was of the Holy Spirit. That is, Mary had conceived the child through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have no doubt that Mary had conveyed that to Joseph. But unsurprisingly, he had found the truth to be stranger than fiction. Okay, Mary. Sure, Mary. You know, and it wasn't just Joseph. Nobody believed her. We only have confirmation that one person believed her, and that was Elizabeth. Is it any wonder that when they went to Bethlehem, now think about this. All of Joseph's family went to Bethlehem. The world was being taxed. No, the world was being taken for a census. You can tax people anywhere, okay? And they were taxed wherever. But for it was a census. We'll get to that in a moment, but... They're there in Bethlehem for the census. That means if Joseph had to go back to to the city of David for a census, so did the rest of his family. So why is there no room for Joseph and Mary? Except in the stable. By the way, the stable uh, is the bottom floor of the inn or the house where everybody was staying. That's where you kept your animals. That's where your animals were fed. Because they look at Mary and Joseph... As filthy, as dirty. Joseph, why are you staying with this adulterous woman? So in their minds, Joseph and Mary are unclean. That's why there's no room for them. They don't want them with them. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph and Mary? And the utter rejection. Alright? You're, you're downstairs, you can hear your family on the second and third and fourth floor having a great time. But you're not wanting At the Christmas party, okay. So there they are, alone by themselves, rejected. See, Christ came unto his own, his own received him not. Even in the womb they didn't receive him. And then in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. We have some exposition by Matthew. He says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through who? The prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child, and, now, and now she, shall bear, she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Wow. Direct tie right back to Isaiah 7.14. By the way, when you had a son, you normally, in their culture, named your son after the father. So they should have named this child Joseph. So when when they call him Jesus, is that the name of his father? Did you have an affair with a man named Jesus? Is that why you're naming this child Jesus? Again, can you imagine the stigma? And then they call him oh, not just Jesus, not just God saves, but then they call him Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, indeed, he was named after his father problem was nobody understood or wanted to understand who his father genuinely was you know the word Emmanuel that name points to deity taking on flesh taking on humanity we call this the incarnation God was with his people in the Old Testament era by filling the tabernacle with his glory However, God became flesh and now dwelt among His people. John 1.18 says, He became flesh, He dwelt among us, we saw His glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here's some irony to drop on you. The word dwelt in John one eighteen, skeneo, it means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. God in His infinite predetermined plan said Jesus came to tabernacle. Remember, previously, God dwelled among His people in the Shekinah glory in a tabernacle made of animal skin, but now He tabernacles with His people in human skin, in human flesh. John the Apostle says in Revelation 21 verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He's living in a tabernacle made of human flesh. From the moment of the incarnation onward, Jesus exists as the God-man. God in human flesh. 100% deity. 100% humanity. There's no loss to his humanity, nor is his humanity lost to his deity. The joining of these two natures, without any relinquishing, is known as the hypostatic union. And that's what we have there in the sign of the Virgin. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Isaiah 11 and verse 1. Christmas and the prophet continues in Isaiah 11, 1 with the prophecy of the stem of Jesse. The stem of Jesse. Verse 1 of Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now we have right here a prophecy telling us That the Messiah is going to come through the Davidic line. Notice the term stem. Geza. Refers to a tree stump. That remains after being cut down. At this point in Israel's history. The Assyrians had decimated Israel. Israel was like a tree cut off at the stump. But Isaiah foretells that that decimated remains. From that decimated remains, from this stump, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Now, that word shoot, hotel, refers to a twig or branch that grows out of a tree. You ever seen a stump and there's branches growing out of the stump? That tells us that there's still life in the roots. And indeed, even though Israel was cut off, the stump remained, there's still life. In that root. And that root is who? The root is Jesse. And from that root, a shoot will come forth. Now, interesting, that word shoot not, also, not only means a branch, but it can refer to a male son. Interestingly. So, from the root of Jesse, a son is going to come forth. That son is none other than the Messiah. Notice the parallel line. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now the word branch there, Nazar, is synonymous with the term shoot. In other words, from the root of Jesse will come a branch. That branch will be the Messiah. Now here's where it becomes interesting. The city of Nazareth derives from this term Nazar or branch. The town of Nazareth can literally be rendered as branch town. Branch town. The town of the branch. What do you call citizens of Nazareth? You call them Nazarenes. Or what? Branches. And so in Matthew 2.23, it says that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus came and lived in a city of Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called, what? A Nazarene. He shall be called a branch in fulfillment of Isaiah 11 and verse 1. Jeremiah builds on this. In Jeremiah 33, verse 15 to 16, he says, In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now, Jeremiah is looking to the future yet. He's looking to that day, the day that's coming when, he will, when the Lord will restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah. When he brings them back to the land, as he says in Jeremiah 30 and verse 3. But he brings them back, he restores their fortunes, he restores their land. Why? Because of the righteous branch of David that springs forth from David's line. That branch of David. Now here, Jeremiah uses a different term for Branch. He uses the word sama. Isaiah used Nazar. Now they're synonymous terms and can be used interchangeably. But I think his choice of term is significant when we go back to the Davidic covenant. David said, God has made an everlasting covenant with me for all my salvation and my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? So Nathan gives David the covenant that God made with him. And David says, God is going to make it grow. Here's here's where it gets interesting again. The word grow here is Sama. He will make it sprout a branch. David declared his descendant is going to sprout like a tree branch. And so when Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to the Messiah as sprouting forth as the stem of Jesse or the branch of David, they're proclaiming that Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. David shall never lack a man Jeremiah says "to sit on the throne now some say well that's impossible that's unattainable the the, the Davidic kingdom ceased in 586 BC but that's a misinterpretation of the text the promise doesn't claim the monarchy would be unbroken it simply says there would be an unbroken line of descendants and indeed Matthew and Luke show us an unbroken line of descendants coming down to Jesus the Messiah Matthew 1.6, he traces his lineage back to David, the king. He traces it from David to Solomon, down through Joseph, and finally to Jesus. By demonstrating that Jesus is of the lineage of David, Matthew's and Luke's chronicles confirm the fulfillment of the biblical prophecy. Jesus is the stem of Jesse. One final passage, and that's in Micah 5 and verse 2. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Christmas and the prophets concludes in Micah 5.2 with the prophecy of the small town. The small town. In Micah 5.2 he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. We have a prophecy of the Messiah's birthplace. Bethlehem, Ephratah. Now, Ephratah is the surrounding area of Bethlehem. Mike also says that Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. Judah. Now, why is it necessary to tell us this? Bethlehem is located in Judah and in Ephrata? because there were other Bethlehem's. There's a Bethlehem in Zebulun, which is eight miles north of or seven miles north of Nazareth. The Messiah's birthplace here is foretold by Micah to be in Bethlehem, Ephratah of Judah, five miles south of Jerusalem. Now you say, does it really matter? Does it matter where the Messiah was born? Isn't it just important that he was born? My friends, it is utterly important that he was born in the right Bethlehem. Because if he was born in any other Bethlehem, he couldn't have fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 49.10 which says the scepter will not depart out of where? Judah. So the king has to be born where? In Judah. Furthermore, he has to be a descendant of David. And Bethlehem is what? The city of David. When Herod inquired as to where the Messiah was to be born, the religious leaders confirmed Micah's prophecy. They said in Matthew 2, 5, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Bethlehem. Least among the clans of Judah. Such a little town. It was such a small town that you cannot find a record of Bethlehem being inhabited In the list of Joshua 15 or Nehemiah 11. But yet from this town. That's how small it is. Didn't even make the census record. But from this town one will go forth. For me to be ruler in Israel. And that one is who? None other than the Messiah. In Matthew 2.6 they also add a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This doesn't come from Micah but from 2 Samuel 5.2. Will shepherd. It means that Jesus the Messiah is going to lead with care and compassion. The Messianic king will rule as a shepherd, caring and having compassion upon his sheep. Michael also says here that his goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Now he not only tells us the Messiah's birthplace, but where the Messiah originates. He doesn't originate in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem, but he originates in eternity. In the distant past, in the days of eternity. In other words, his origin is divine. He is God in the flesh. He's the eternal God. You know, it's noteworthy that the rabbis of the day taught that Jesus would be revealed, the Messiah, rather, would be revealed at a place called Migdal Eder, Tower of the Flock. And you find that teaching in a very ancient uh, commentary on the Torah uh, specifically on Genesis. And it refers to a tower built in an area where sheep were herded. Now, here's why this is significant. In Genesis 35, 19, Rachel, remember Jacob's wife, died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, or Ephratah, that is Bethlehem. And after burying his wife, Genesis 35, 21 reveals that Jacob journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, Eder's about a mile from Bethlehem, if you're heading towards Ebron. Let's fast forward now to the second temple period. In Babakama 7.7 of the Talmud, sheep herding was outlawed throughout the land of Israel, except, except in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, known as the Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock. So there's no other place in Israel, in the land of Israel, where you can raise sheep, because sheep just will devour the entire agriculture. Okay. The only area you could shepherd sheep was in the surrounding area of Bethlehem of Ephratah in Judah. And then we go right to Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. In the same region, what region? The region of Bethlehem of of Judah. There were shepherds, wonder where that region was, Tower of Eder, Eder Migdal. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields, watching over their flocks by night. Again, the only place shepherds can be in the entire land of Israel. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, said to them, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. For today in the city of David, did they wonder, Gee, I wonder where the city of David is. No, they knew, Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the rabbis were so close to the truth, and yet they missed it by a mile. They knew the Messiah would be revealed at Migdal Eder to the shepherds. And that's exactly what God did. How fitting that the Messiah, the son of David, would be born in the city of David's birth. And like his earthly ancestor, be a shepherd. Folks, how is it now? How did it happen that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem as foretold by Micah? Because in Luke 2, 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the whole inhabited earth. And by the way, I give credit here to the NASB translators because they adequately translate that term, apographo, which is always should be a census. It's not the Greek word for tax. You could tax people anywhere. But for Caesar's census, everyone needed to go back to their ancestral home. And so in Luke 2.3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Accordingly then, Joseph, a descendant of David, took Mary, his espoused wife, went to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register for the census. Luke 2.4 says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, down to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. Indeed, that small town of Bethlehem certifies that Jesus is the descendant of David, the messianic king and shepherd. Christmas in the prophets. We've got four key prophecies here. The seed of David tells us Jesus is the descendant of David, the rightful king and the redeemer, our redeemer. The second prophecy, the sign of the virgin, foretells how Jesus will come as God in the flesh and dwell among us as the God-man. The stem of Jesse foretells that through the Davidic line, though seemingly decimated, a branch will sprout from that stump who would be king. And that branch is none other than Jesus, the Nazarene. And the final prophecy of that small town foretells the place of the king's birth and that King Jesus will also be a shepherd. Indeed, He is the Good Shepherd. You know, in First Peter one ten to 10-11, the prophets who prophesied of the grace would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. These Old Testament prophets studied diligently over long periods of time these divine revelations they received about the Messiah's birth and His life and His death and so on. My question is, how much more should we be taking time to diligently study those same prophecies? Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill, Polero means to cause, God pro- to, to cause God's promises... Given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. Do you understand? Do you realize that every promise spoken by the prophets. Whether in the law, the prophets or the writings. Regarding Jesus' birth. Have all been fulfilled. Not one promise has gone unfulfilled. You know it's sad to think that all of those prophets. Have all died. They all died never seeing the fulfillment. Of those promises. But you and I today are privileged. Because we have the privilege of reading. These prophecies. We have the privilege of reading the Hebrew scriptures. Along with the New Testament. The New Covenant writings. We have the privilege to see that all things. Written about Christ. In the law of Moses. In the prophets. And in the writings. Have been fulfilled. Indeed, the Christmas message in the Hebrew Scripture is good news of great joy for all people. Christ, the Savior, has been born. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, again we come to you through our Savior, your Son, the Messiah. And Father, we have to stop and give you praise here because you have done something tremendous. You have given us the greatest gift ever. You have given us a gift of your Son. You have given us the gift of redemption, of salvation from sin and from the lake of fire. And Father, you didn't, weren't caught off guard by our sin, no. In eternity past, Father, we praise you because you put a plan in motion before you even created us to redeem us to give us the greatest Christmas gift ever, the gift of eternal life through your Son. And so, Father God, we praise you. Father, forgive us for becoming so overwhelmed with all the trimmings and trappings of this holiday season that we lose sight of that gift of your Son. Whether we see him as that babe wrapped in swallowing clothes. Or we see him as that, that man hanging naked upon a tree. Father, we see our trees. We see all kinds of pretty things hanging on them. But Father, there is a greater tree that we need to see. And that is a tr- the tree called the cross. Where your son hanged naked and destitute. Beaten and bloodied. Pouring out his life and giving his life as a ransom. To redeem us from sin. Forgive us Father. For not taking time to look at that tree. Father I ask that. As we celebrate this season. Bless our times together with our families. Bless our times of enjoyment. And our gift giving and all of that. But Father I pray that we'll all take the time. And the quietness of our hearts whether in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening, whenever, but it will take those times to reflect on your Son, the gift of your Son, the gift of salvation that hung on a tree to redeem us from the curse of sin and damnation in the lake of fire. We give you the praise, Lord. We give you all the glory for that. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.